turn, please, to uh, the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 22, as um, I continue in the series that you're uh, experiencing through guest preachers. Matthew 22, and beginning at verse 15. This is on page 872 in the Pew Version of the Bible. Hear the very word of God. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Here ends the reading of God's word. May God speak as the word is preached, and may we receive and apply what he has for us today through Christ our Lord, amen. What does this section of Matthew 22, the whole chapter, the context, mean? Is it mainly about the relation of the citizen to the state and to God? Is it a beginning of discussion about the church and the civil magistrate, or is it something else? Now, in the larger context, the important background, as you should remember, is that Jesus has been engaging in this back and forth with some of Israel's religious leaders, which continues in this chapter. Matthew 22 begins with, a third devastating parable about them. Then Jesus easily handles questions intended to trip him up. In this parable, Jesus goes beyond merely exposing the religious leaders to revealing God's grace for others. Jesus compares the citizens of heaven to a king throwing a wedding feast. I think that was preached here very recently a wedding feast for his son. And none of the citizens he invited would attend, even resisting to the point of killing the king's messengers. What a, what a strange response to a, a wedding feast invitation. After destroying the murderers, the king invited as many as could be found on the public roads, and the hall is finally filled. At the end of this, the king has one guest thrown out, however, 
when he arrives without a wedding garment. This passage is in close parallel to his parable of the great banquet. Christ's words here are not only speaking to Israel's rejection of the Messiah, they also teach of God's program involving salvation by grace meant for all nations, which was promised from Genesis chapter 12 when he called Abram. Now we come to this passage in Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22, which is a very famous event containing Jesus' response to this question about taxes and, most importantly, a question about the image of God. The discussion is also found in Mark 12 and in Luke 20, but let us look at it in Matthew. After hearing those three parables in which they are pictured as rebelling against God, the Pharisees are absolutely furious with Jesus. He has got them red-faced, gritting their teeth, angry. So, they hatch this plan to force Jesus, they hope, to say something that might get him arrested for rebellion against Rome. Some of the Pharisees' disciples, along with, Matthew tells us, along with some Herodians, begin by flattering Jesus, then asking if paying taxes to Caesar, meaning the Roman Empire, is right according to Old Testament law. By the way, these Herodians, it's important to note that they are also brought along. The name of the party is probably originated in a kind of hero worship of Herod the Great, according to F.F. F. Bruce. So this is a bipartisan effort, you see. Here, the Pharisees and the Herodians are working together, and this is evidence of their great, great hatred for Jesus because they're willing to put aside their differences for the sake of uniting against Jesus. Jesus knows exactly what they are trying to do, and so he calls them hypocrites. And that had to make them even more angry, didn't it? So let's look first at their flattering introduction. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted how to entangle him in his words. They sent to their disciples along with him the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you're true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion. Such wonderful flowery words of, of flattery. Beware when anybody uh, begins by flattering you as to how great you are before they're about to put you on the spot in some terrible way. Verse 17, they, they say, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? F.F. Uh, F. Bruce says the compliment, besides being treacherous, was insulting, implying that Jesus was a reckless simpleton who would give himself away a vain man who would be flattered easily and then be caught in his own situation. Jesus' dilemma with this question was simple. In case you missed it, if he said that taxes should be paid, 
he could be accused of denying the sovereignty of God over Israel, making himself unpopular with the Jewish people. If he said that taxes should not be paid, he made himself an enemy of Rome. So again, lawful here does not refer to anything except uh, the law of God, not the Roman law, but the law of God. One commentator in studying this tells us that there were three regular taxes. There was a ground tax, which was a 10% tax on grain production, and then a 20% tax on oil and wine. There was the income tax, which was 1% of a man's income. And there was the poll tax, paid by every man from 14 years of age to 65 years of age, and every woman from 12 years of age to 65 years of age. This tax was one denarius per year. And so this, this tax that's being questioned here was the poll tax. The poll tax, a tax for simply existing, not for producing anything or using the infrastructure or anything else, but simply for existing. Paying the poll tax was the most obvious sign of submission to Rome. The zealots claimed that the poll tax was a God-dishonoring badge of slavery to the pagans. And then we go to the answer that Jesus gave, verses 18 through 22. I'll read it again. But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard these things, they marveled and left him and went their way. Render means to give back. It's a verb for paying a bill or settling a debt. They owed it to him. Jesus was aware of their malice, and so he cut to the chase, calling them hypocrites, and then demanding to see the coin used for the tax. By the way, this, this was a very hated coin by the Jews uh, because it was the coin of their Roman oppressors. Um, having to use this coin for these Jews would be like having um, the Dutch citizens during the Nazi occupation of Holland being forced to say in the greeting places, Heil Hitler. It made them angry just to even touch this coin with this, this image on it and this inscription on it. The Jews, in making their coins, were not allowed to put images of people, human faces, on their coins. But this coin was stamped with Caesar's image. And also on the coin was the inscription, listen to this, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, high priest. In Latin, Pontifex Maximus, which by the way later became the title of all the popes. Excuse me, the popes. <laughs> These words would... Um, would Send a shudder of nausea 
through any devout Jew. No Jew would be happy to to have to use or even touch such a coin. And that would be a very happy excuse not to have to pay taxes to Caesar. They wouldn't want to touch the thing. But Jesus does not give anyone this excuse. Rather, he draws their attention to the likeness and inscription stamped on the coin and then says, you had better pay Caesar back in his own coin, hadn't you? In effect. But let's be clear here. Jesus here is not trying to give an answer for all time on the relationship between God and the political authority. That was not the point of the answer to such a question, which, which that greater question has to be qualified in various political and social settings. There's not one easy answer to when you have to yield obedience to the state and when you may not, when you can engage in civil disobedience or something like that. That is a very complex question. No, Jesus was countering the Pharisees' challenge to him with a sharp challenge in return. He was continuing the pattern of the previous devastating parables, which made them so mad. He gave an answer which exposed their sin when he said, render to God the things that are God's. Underline that. He exposed their sin when he said, render to God the things that are God's. It turns out, therefore, that they are the ones who were compromised by their own question. Can they say they have given their full allegiance to God? No, of course not. Render to God the things that are God's. These words tell us that if we wish to come to God, we must give God everything which is his due. Love the Lord your God. How much? With all your heart and soul and mind and strength. That's how much. Render to God. Everything we are. Everything we have, our body, our soul, our heart, our life, our powers, our joys, our honor, belongs to God. And they could not say that they were rendering to God. And that's important, especially in the light of the essential doctrine from creation that we are made in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In asking whose likeness and inscription is stamped on the coin, Jesus draws a connection to the likeness that should have been by creation evident in the lives of those who are here attacking him. As the coin bore the image of Caesar, so we were meant to bear the image of God. In the image of God, 
means a spiritual likeness of God in which Adam and Eve were created and in which they once lived in perfect righteousness, flawless, sinless, constant love to God and obedience to God, holiness of life, perfect relationship with God and with each other and with creation. But that image was marred when our father Adam fell into sin. The adversaries of Jesus are asking him this question in order to trap him. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus' response ends up trapping them and commanding them to render unto God the things that are God's. Jesus is forcing them to ask themselves whether they are giving to God what they should be giving. Now, how do you today, you and I, how do we render to God the things that are God's? Well, we read it in 1 Peter, to some extent, on the citizen level. And again, this is not the main question that Jesus is answering, but the other writers of the New Testament do begin to answer these things for us in certain ways. Peter said, fear God, honor the king. There's a relationship between God and also the civil magistrate. One commentator says, every Christian has a double citizenship. He's a citizen of the country in which he happens to live. To it, he owes many things. He owes the safety against lawless men, which only a settled government can give. He owes all public services. But Jesus also said, and to God, the things that are God's. Everyone has the image of God impressed upon them. This means that we belong to God, not Caesar. And not even to ourselves. By treating Caesar's things as distinct from God's, Jesus said in effect, according to F.F. Bruce, the kingdom of God is not of this world and it is possible to be a true citizen of the kingdom and yet quietly submit to the civil rule of a foreign potentate. The image of God stamped on the soul denotes that in all its faculties and powers, it belongs to the Most High and should be employed in his service. And just a historical note here, too, um, to understand in the flow of redemptive history where Israel is at this moment. Had the Jews rendered unto God his due, they would never have had to render anything to Caesar. That's going back to Deuteronomy. That's going back to the promises that were made. If you, if you obey the Lord your God, you get all these blessings. But if you disobey, all these curses will come upon you. In these New Testament times, they would never have endured the occupying oppression of the Roman Empire if they had been obedient to their covenant with God. But now, how about you, you, you and I here today rendering to God the things that belong to God? What does that mean? It, it raises the question, for whom do you live? Do you live no longer for yourself, but only for God, giving him your all perfectly, without fail, all the time? Do you? Do you? The answer is no. 
None of us has rendered unto God what is his due. And how can we, seeing that the human race no longer bears perfectly that image of God, because Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. By nature, everyone now lives only for himself or herself. By our fallen nature in Adam, every person, in fact, in fact, every person hates God in Adam. We hate God. We are God haters. Just as these people gathered here around Jesus are there because of their hatred for God. By nature, everyone seeks the satisfaction of his or her own heart in the world and seeks its goods and joys and honor, not God's. God intended in our creation, our perfect creation, for us to bear his image, to live in perfect righteousness and holiness and perfect relationship with God and each other and with creation. But the problem is that God's image in us is deeply marred. It was ruined by our father, Adam, when he rebelled. Years ago, um, when I lived in Wilmington, Delaware, I used to regularly visit a prison. Um, I had come to uh, a place where I, I was ministering by going down and offering Bible studies to prisoners. So I would go through the process of checking into the prison, uh, having going through the metal detector and having all my possessions looked at carefully and to make sure that I wasn't carrying anything in. Then I would go into a certain area of the prison and I would walk into a a residential place called a pod, and I would just uh, offer the Bible studies to people, offering the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, the good news of God's grace which overcomes our sin and is greater than all our sin and takes away our sin and makes us right with God, that good news. That was what I would love and did love to go in and offer to the men in this prison. Now, would it have been the same if I had simply gone into that prison and come into the area and said, I've got good news for you all. I've got great news for you all. Here it is. This is it. Be good. Be good. Try harder and be good. That's the good news. Be good. That's not good news. That's not good news. By yourself, in yourself, you cannot render back to God what is his due. And God rejects as worthless any offerings that would, by which we would render ourselves. And so we have nothing that we can render to God, nothing except Jesus Christ. Jesus, you see, is the very and the perfect image of God. As Paul says in Colossians, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.15, Jesus alone can render to God the things that God requires of us. That is, true fear and love and trust in God. So perfect and complete was his rendering unto God, his Father, that Jesus rendered himself even on the cross. 
as the full payment for all our debts to God. The key, therefore, to rendering yourself to God, you and I today, is not be good. It is not try harder to be good before God. No. The only way that you and I can render ourselves to God is to be in union with Christ, who is the image of God. Union is a very, very important doctrine that is so important to understanding how we can render ourselves to God. In the New Testament, we find literally hundreds of references to the believer's union with Christ. To cite merely a few examples, believers are created in Christ, Ephesians 2.10. Crucified with him, in him, in Galatians 2.20. Buried with him, Colossians 2.12. Baptized into his death, Romans 6.3. United with him in his resurrection, Romans 6.5. Seated with him in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2.6. Christ is formed in believers, Galatians 4.19. And dwells in our hearts, Ephesians 3.17. The church is the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 6 and 12. Christ is in us, 2 Corinthians 13. And we are in him, 1 Corinthians 1.30. The church is one flesh, with Christ, Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. And believers gain Christ and are found in him, in him, union. Philippians 3, 8 through 9. Furthermore, we are told that in Christ we are justified. And that little, pre, that little preposition in in Greek means in the sphere of, connected to, in union with. We are justified in union with Christ. We are glorified in union with Christ. We are sanctified in union with Christ. We are called. We are made alive. We are created anew. We are adopted. We are elected. Suffice it to say, union with Christ is an absolutely fundamental gospel conviction of the apostles, dear to them because it was so dear to their Lord. Your union with Christ is profoundly real and intensely intimate. Union with Christ is not a sentiment. It is not a metaphor or an illustration or primarily a doctrine, nor is it a way of speaking about something else, whether justification or sanctification or any other benefit of Christ. Our union with Christ, the living Christ, is the essential truth of which our new and and eternal existence depends. This is true, though it transcends our finite understanding. There is no better news than this. The news that by faith in Christ, we are in union with Christ, the perfect image of God. According to Calvin, our union with Christ is to be accorded the highest, he says, the highest degree of importance. Why? Because being joined to Jesus is the whole point of the gospel. For this is the design of the gospel, that Christ may become ours and that we may be engrafted into him in his body. 
we are, this is an interesting statement of Calvin. We are not united to Christ because we have been justified. It is quite the other way around. We are justified because we have been united to Christ by faith, who is himself our justification. And this results also, finally, in our sanctification. In him you have put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians 4.24. And that righteousness and holiness that is, in, that is by faith in Christ, we now must live and serve God in Christ, rendering to God our repentance, our daily denying ourselves, and our taking up our crosses and following Jesus in trusting, obedient discipleship. But I remind you again, it's not do good, it's not try harder. Our hope is not in ourselves, for we confess that we have nothing to render to the Lord for all his benefits to us. Jesus himself renders up to God what is God's, and that is himself. On the cross, outstretched arms, he rendered to God all that belonged to God. And now you and I, in union with him, which is by faith, can render to God and are rendered to God. Jesus himself renders up to God what is God's, and with this gift, he not only forgives your sins and declares you righteous, but through your union with him, he also renders you to his Father. He gives himself and gives us. He is the image of God, and now in him, so are you and I. For the Son presents to his Father his own immaculate, redeemed, holy bride in his image. That's how we can render to God the things that belong to God. We're going to see that finally in a scene wrapped up in the book of Revelation where the Apostle John says, after this, this is Revelation 7, 9 through 14, after this I looked and beheld a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes. And we are told elsewhere that those white robes are the righteous deeds of the saints. That is the rendering to God the things that belong to God. And they have palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's rendering to God. Verse 13, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Oh, that's the, the whole thing of fallen world, the fallen Adam cursed world 
coming out of the great tribulation, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, in union with Christ, the one who rendered himself to God. And your identity and my identity must be that of a blood-washed follower of the Lamb. Through this union, he rendered you to God at the cross and the resurrection, and he renders you to God now by reshaping you into his own holy image. And he will finally render you to God saying, as it is quoted from Isaiah in the book of Hebrews, behold, I and the children you have given me. God is blessed and surely Christ renders us to himself in those words. Behold, I and the children you have given me. You, therefore, sitting here today, may truly and successfully render yourself to God in whose image you were made through faith in Christ, union with Christ. This is the gospel and your hope of glory. Amen.